Hey, I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the Mission Manhood Podcast. Today my guest is Ian McKenzie. Ian is a documentary filmmaker, an artist, and the host of the Mythic Masculine Podcast. I'm excited about this episode because I think it exemplifies the different ways of knowing in the magician energy, and sometimes that's really hard to grasp or hard to explain. And so I just want you to notice how he talks about acquiring new knowledge and he learns about new things that are interesting to him. He also really seeks to get in touch with his inner knowing and he spreads knowledge. He uses his secret knowledge to help people understand concepts or situations that might be difficult for them. So I hope you enjoy the episode and I thank you so much for joining. Hello and welcome to the Mission Manhood podcast. Today, my guest is Ian McKenzie. Hi, Ian. Hey, nice to be here. Thank you for for being here today. Mm-hmm. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your work and what you're doing at your podcast, The Mythic Masculine? Sure. Well, suppose I could get into it by saying for about the last 13, 14 years, I've been an artist, primarily a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker. And I've been really intrigued by edges of emergent culture. So whether that is going to a place like Burning Man or uh, Occupy Wall Street or Fukushima, you know, a year after the partial meltdown, just seeing how the Buddhists were responding at the time, like just really curious, right, about what's going on in the edges, what's going on in the mm-hmm. fringes. And I would use filmmaking as a way to bring these stories back to, to the mainstream. And uh, around sort of 2014 or so, I got intrigued by this idea of the rise of the feminine. Right, the rise of the feminine archetypes mm-hmm. and and how that was being expressed uh, personal collectively. And so I co-created a project uh, that became known as Amplify Her. And then in that journey, I also realized how little I knew about the masculine, which the irony there being that, you know, it just hadn't really clued in. Like, wait a second. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't actually know much about. Yeah. So that made me find, uh, there was synchronistic events that led me to, to Iron John, as well as King War, Magician Lover, and finding really these you know, I would call them first wave mythopoetic yes. artifacts in some ways. And uh, and then from there, I got really curious to like, well, wait a second, what has, what's happened since? You know, where's the conversation now? And I began to invite people onto a podcast that I'd started using mythology, culture, uh, storytelling as the way in. Uh, and that's called the Mythic Masculine. When I invited you on the podcast, it's been a while. Some things happened and it's just now that we're we're doing this. And the last two guests I've had are right in that lane that you're just now describing. So it seems like it was meant to be, maybe the timing, as mm-hmm. it usually is. Yeah, beautiful. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, like how you were raised? I grew up in the suburbs outside of Vancouver, Canada. I would say a kind of middle class you know, existence. And I mean, in some ways, it was, it was very stable, which I'm certainly grateful for. And at the same time, I would say there's sort of a what I've come to now understand is a bit bit more of a cultural absence, right? A, an absence of real deep culture as so much of the modern world has lost. And so I think it was that longing certainly to to be like, well, what's that? what else is out there, right? And I think, of course, a lot of youth have this uh, this willingness to to seek right beyond and sort of late, late teens, early 20s, I stumbled into Buddhism when I thought like, wow, I found it, you know, here, here it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, why doesn't everybody just meditate and wake up and... And then at the same time, I was like, oh, actually, wait, there's systems of power and, and 
momentum, you know, that started long before us and are presently still, um, we're in their wake. And so I was like, okay, so activism came online for me. You know, it was a 2003 uh, invasion of Iraq that, you know, was on highly suspect aims that uh, I was part of the largest, I think it was at the time, some of the, or the largest world protest movement against the invasion. And of course, you know, America still did it or the government did. From then that kind of like, I guess, awoken me a kind of, well, wait a second, you know, how do we really engage with these times in a meaningful way? And I also discovered filmmaking around that time. And that's why I was like, oh, interesting. So filmmaking for me became, I sort of recognize it as the capacity to shift uh, consciousness in a very a sort of quick period of time um, with effective you know, music and sound and, and ideas. And so that's why I was like, oh, okay, so if we need to really shift a, a kind of collective story or, or a collective mythology around what's going on and why and where we derive meaning from, then I was like, okay, filmmaking seems to be the most effective way to do that. Yeah, that became a sort of journey into that medium alongside certainly yeah, my own interests uh, yeah, in alternative culture, like I said, and, and act- activist spaces. You know, along the way, I was married at a sort of middle 20s, which I guess in this generation is, is kind of young. Pretty young. Yeah. My partner at the time was a few years older, and so maybe balanced out a bit. Yeah, I was around, uh, well, the whole relationship was 10 years, but it was six years in, after the marriage. Uh, the marriage ended actually for different reasons. And, you know, in uh, Iron John, he talks about the road of ashes, which is when, you know, the the best intent of your youth sort of crumbles or burns, you know, in your fingertips and and you're just left with the ashes. And that's how it felt. And And oftentimes that tends to happen around early 30s. And that's what it did for me. And so, yeah, since then I've, I've sort of, that launched me into a whole other inquiry around love and relationships, community of which uh, different projects, you know, have, have uh, sprouted from that. And most recently, uh, my son was born uh, two and a half years ago. So he's, uh, you know, quite active and yeah, congratulations. speaking a lot. Yeah, thanks. And that's initiation to fatherhood certainly has been a whole other ride. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a whole nother spiritual journey when you have a little child and they're completely dependent on you and it shows you a yeah. lot about yourself, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that you have the idea of taking these really more radical or fringe ideas and pulling them in so that normal or more typical people can understand them. Because I think, especially today, I don't know if it's always been this way, but it seems like we're so quick to have an opinion about something and we have to judge it as right or wrong right away. And mm-hmm. I think the internet lends to that. We we have our experts that we trust and we, we don't look much further. So I love the idea of you going there and bringing that back. Yeah, and I think it might be helpful to, to name, the, I think there's, in some ways, there's an evolutionary advantage in a way to to not too quickly letting in new ideas. Like you can see how people might be a little nervous about new ideas, right? If they think things are working pretty good. And at the same time, of course, that can be hijacked when a really polarized climate around certain issues and and like social media isn't really the ground to have real meaningful connection and conversation. Right. It just basically means you can dig in further your own uh, perspective and opinion, what you already thought. And in that sense, it tends to amplify and, and separate versus really find like the, tr- the truth that can be below the initial sense of disconnection, right? Like um, if anybody's studied nonviolent communication, you know, often, yeah, below that, of course, you're like, oh, you know, my need is actually for connection, just like yours. Yeah. Um, but we can't find it if we're sort of lost in, you know, being uh, enemies on on social media on this two-dimensional platform. 
you know, when I originally contacted you, I had read a poem that you wrote, and I wondered if you have that handy. Would you mind reading that? Sure. Be glad to. Should I give context on the poem beforehand? Yeah, I would like that. Please. Sure. So this piece was written in uh, sort of the immediate aftermath of actually visiting a area in this part of the world on Vancouver Island, which has been a destination for a blockade the last eight months or so. And what's been going on in this part of the world is that the logging companies have been quickly eradicating a lot of the old growth forests in this region. Some of these trees are you know, anywhere from 500 to 1,000 or more years old, which somebody made a comparison recently to, you know, it's one thing when the Notre Dame Cathedral, right, is, is, is uh, I think it was burned by fire and, and you know, there's this global outpouring of support to, to fix it and rebuild as a national treasure. And these trees, all of them are Notre Dame's. And somehow there's this economic system that is demanding that they be cut down. And there's something like two and a half percent left in this region from what there were. Clearly, you know, we're down to the last the last stand, really. And so what happened was when there was word got out uh, last summer that they, the logging company was building into these sensitive areas, pro- call them protesters, uh, I call them forest protectors. They came and essentially blockaded and said, you know, no further, like we need to talk about this, really. It's not, a, it's not we can't do this. These are ancient mothers. And so that created a blockade that the logging company couldn't go in. Governments, you know, saying, well, we, we said we would save these trees, but actually it's not really, it's out of our hands. So it's really created a, a sticky situation, really. And it, it kind of blew up more recently when an injunction was granted to the logging company, which means the police are therefore uh, open to arresting the force protectors. So that's actually happening right now. The, the RCMP have now showed up and after a month or two from the injunction, as we speak, they're probably pulling protectors out of one certain area, Kayakus. And there's about actually five or six blockades now that the, they've set up to stop the logging. So it's quite a standoff. And so when I was there about a month, a month ago, just over a month ago, I interviewed one of the main protectors named Yogi Shambu for my podcast. And from something about being there in this yeah, really beautiful, beloved community is really what I'd call it. They they kind of inspired a response. And to me, this is what the poem was. It was sort of a mythic response and an invitation for those still on the sideline or still wondering, you know, what's going on or why should I get involved? Okay. And so I'll read it now. What will it take for you to awaken? What will it take for you to recognize the great nothing will continue to devour all things that generate and sustain life. What will it take for you not to turn away, seduced by the facade that it could possibly get better without your unique and specific contribution? What will it take for you to understand we are only moments to midnight, yet we still might have a shot to remember why we were born now? What will it take for you to recognize this may be the only invitation you will get? That causes so much emotion for me. Mm. And it hit me so hard the first time I read it. And it just captures something that I feel inside. Mm. And you mentioned those trees as the great mother and... Mm. I feel like it all just it just goes together. I mean, that's just a, a micro example of us mm-hmm. continuing to fight against each other. Mm-hmm. And no matter how 
successful we are. Like the old proverb says, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Mm-hmm. And so just to do away with those treasures. And I wouldn't have even understood it. Like your voice here, I understand what you're saying, but it's a beautiful example of your work because I went and watched a little video of those beautiful trees and the children with the trees. And you can't even imagine until you've seen it. Why would we allow that? Who would, who would say yes to that? Hmm. Yeah, thank you for being touched. Um, I think it's a uh, oft quoted, perhaps in in trauma healing as well, the that you have to feel it to heal it, something like that, right? And I think that's so much of what uh, is necessary to really bring people awake to what's really going on, right? And a lot of a lot of people in in stuck in kind of the modern paradigm have a sense of disconnection or isolation or low level anxiety or uh, ennui, you know, just meaninglessness. And there's this wondering like. You know, they're tr- trying to solve it at the level of one's own personal story or one's, one's own personal life. But I think in many ways, those are like symptoms. Those are actually symptoms of a loss of uh, a real sense of connection and purpose to what matters, which in this case is our very mother, the being that sustains us. And it's some kind of bizarre tragedy that we, if we understand that we as humans sprung from this very generative being with our consciousness that allows us to think we are separate, then it's, it's, yeah, it's utter irony that therefore those humans would go to work immediately, you know, destroying the very basis of the thing that gave them life in the first place. And I have a teacher named Stephen Jenkinson, who I'm very blessed to spend many years with, but he had some line, which is just really apropos, I think of the situation, which is something like, it's human to forget how to be human. It's, it's normal. It's human to forget. You know, you can forget sometimes, but the real danger happens if everybody forgets at the same time. You could say that for me, that's what modern civilization is. It's everybody forgetting at the same time. I mean, thankfully, there's a lot of indigenous folk and others who have, you know, maybe maintained their connection to the land and to the sense of the rightness and the, that this is a response to this moment. And they're the ones trying to say, hey, you know, wake up, people, like, wake up. Because this is what I meant by the great nothing. The great nothing is the forgetting. And if we don't think that that has a wake, like if people think COVID is a problem, and it has been certainly uh, in terms of the, the calamity to business as usual, the, the whole climate collapse, biological challenges that are coming forth are going to dwarf it, right? And so the sooner that there can be this uh, shaking awake, hopefully, you know, the sooner there can be a meaningful engagement with these times. And so for me, that was really this trying to impart a little bit of that, just that almost like a, a how a Zen koan hopefully can just sort of snap you out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really beautiful. And occasionally I'll read something and it feels like it came out of my own soul. The way I try to see things or learn things is in patterns. When I say that's kind of a small example of what's happening in a larger scale, I feel like as a representative of the great mother or the feminine, that if we continue to move forward in the men's movement without that connection, it's not going to work again. It's just mm-hmm. repeating the same patterns. Mm. And I think we're emerging. I'm so happy about men reclaiming their masculinity. And I think you know that I have three sons 
part of the reason I'm even interested in this is because I see this world that they're going into that it's really difficult for them to claim their masculinity or know what is healthy masculinity. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned Stephen Jenkinson. I wrote down something from your site that he said, maybe masculinity and femininity are ways of inquiring rather than things to inquire about. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could expound on that a little bit. What did that mean to you? Sure. For me, that that definitely stuck out with me as well in that conversation. And I think it's interesting that if we think of masculinity or femininity as a phenomenon or a phenomena, and I think it was, um, there's conversations that have happened. I, I mean, Alan Watts was quoting this in some of his older teachings, and certainly other indigenous language scholars can or will point out that a lot of uh, indigenous languages don't have nouns, or they only have verbs. So th- what that does to your understanding of what things are, is you don't, you can't speak of them as discrete things, right? Like, oh, that's this is me and that's them. And this is a woman and this is a man as like an isolated something. Mm -hmm. It's only like a happening or or an expression. And so that to me spoke a little bit to what Stephen, I think was saying was what if masculinity was a way of inquiring and as just as femininity is a way of inquiring. And it, it started to make more sense to me in a tangible way when I also started to map it to, for example, one could characterize uh, a masculine or, or a, ra- a rational scientific way of perceiving the world as, as in some ways like an outsider to it, right? And this is the scientific method of observing something. So you, you kind of, you, you sort of take yourself out of it to observe it from the outside. And then, right. you know, often you reduce it to its parts and you try to understand how it works. And that has, you know, value certainly because we can build spaceships and computers and things like that because of that. But then there's a whole other way of inquiry which is, uh, I would call it, you know, an internal inquiry through like sensation and embodiment and perception and intuition. And you even hear it in that intuition, which perhaps could be understood as more feminine. And so in some ways, they're both observing or inquiring after the same, could be the same phenomena or the same focus, but their directions are different. And, and then if we look to gender as well, maybe there'd be less contention around genders if they were understood less as you know, identity and more as a kind of happening, which can shift certainly when they look different in different cultures as, as they are unique to that specific place, just like peoples in different places, you know, they, they were specific to the land that they were on. They were often expressions of the land. And I think in some ways we are in a modern dilemma now, which is because there's been so much dislocation from ancestral homelands, there's not really like a, a shared identity anymore uh, that's specific to place, right? It's, it's become more of a homogenous uh, coping the, with the absence of that place specificity. And in some ways that means that I think it makes sense that the response could be to try to create a new universal. Women aren't supposed to be this way and men aren't supposed to be that way. Then they're supposed to be this way and they're supposed to be that way. Like it, they kind of create each other as opposed to, yeah. again, a kind of like place specific understanding. When I think about it, just like what I said earlier, who could who could chop down that tree? Who could mm-hmm. cut down that tree? And it's people who've forgotten, as you said, who they are. I think when the masculine gets disconnected from the feminine, then it's able to continue just that domination thing, that going out, and it forgets to come in. Yeah. And just like in a relationship, if the man in a relationship just goes out into the world every day and works and forgets to come back and have intimacy with his woman, that relationship is going to fall apart. You know, you have to come back in. But I think it's harder for 
traditional men to see that that very same thing happens within your own heart. Mm-hmm. Without that meditative practice or without that, it's sort of a, a voluntary <laughs> scrutiny, basically. Mm-hmm. When you go to that meditative place and you're allowed to let your consciousness show you things and tell you things and check you because your ego is very valuable and useful, but it sometimes gets you too far out. Yeah. Something that Steve had said one time as well, and and he just made it offhand comment, and he's brilliant at doing this thing in, in like moments where you don't expect to be floored by something. But he said one time, slowing down is the thing you're looking for. And I was like, what? And I mean, it kind of, I think there's a few of us around because we were talking a little bit about the momentum of the, the current culture, particularly youngers who are, again, you know, pasted on their phones and there's the speed, right? The speed of everything, which means you never really land anymore. And, mm-hmm. and he said, it's almost like sharks. You have to keep moving or you'll die is, is, yeah. the, is the fear. I think that's the case too when uh, an, econ- an economic system has the same qualities. And so there's this sort of momentum that's telling you more, more, build, grow. But underneath that is this deep anxiety, right? Of like, what happens if I stop? And the irony though, of course, is that that is the thing that is actually longed for. I think the place of rest for men and specifically often who are yeah sort of conditioned out of this. And I know that's place in me. There's the sense of, well, if I only achieve a little bit more, if I only earn a little bit more money or if I only, then I'll get to rest. Mm -hmm. And that never happens because there's always the next thing. There's always like, and so, you know, I I, um, interviewed a fellow, he's an embodiment teacher, Philip Shepard. But he has a great riff on this where he just says, it's a bit like the, you know, the mind is sort of governing the body from up in, a, in the tower and mm-hmm. sort of thinking that, you know, that that's, that that's the right arrangement. And he's like, well, actually, homeness or the quality of being at home is within the body. And so, again, going to this masculine, feminine or sort of outside, inside um, way of inquiring that the coming home to the body is is the deep longing, actually, I, I would say, where the intellect then gets to you know, put down its constant doing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't do it every day, but the days that I can get my mind to yield, I ask it to yield every day. Mm. I can't always get it to yield. But the, what it does, it's almost like having a dream, but I'm awake. Mm-hmm. But it's like something else takes over. And I think that's that inner knowing is able to come forth when I ask my mind to yield. And some people, like you said, are, are putting their mind as maybe the highest thing. I, like, I appreciate that word yield as well. I like that word. Yeah. I picture the old story about, was it Moses and the Red Sea? Hmm. Where Because my mind feels like a super highway, just this raging river. And so if you can just like get it to stop for a minute and you have that little little bit of an opening before it just starts mm-hmm. flooding back again. One thing that you said about the the shark, if we stop, we'll die. To your point, the younger generations, even me, you feel that way because you're going to get behind. You're not going to know the latest. I tell my kids often, you don't know what it means to wonder. Mm. Because even now, if you say, I wonder what that guy's name was, somebody's on their phone figuring it out and they tell you. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And Used to when we would ride the bus or wait in line at the grocery store, we would wonder and really daydream. And that was kind of a natural connection. And that's where maybe some of our thoughts would get turned into daydreams. And we never allow ourselves to have that time anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautifully said. I mean, I would say, yeah, there's there's no waiting anymore. You know, there's only filling and it's gotten, yeah, certainly worse. And I'm 
totally bad at it, you know, sitting in the grocery line and being like, oh, I can check my phone one more time. Yeah. Uh, but I realized that, yeah, it kind of keeps you at running on a, a low level alert, you know, all the time. And certainly that can be great for your nervous system and uh, a sense of, yeah, slowing down enough to, to kind of meet the pace of life, the way that life actually moves, not society. And, uh, and I see, yeah, that that gap is really what's also perpetuating this, the cutting down of the trees, right? And the other ways in which we're toxifying the biosphere because we're just moving too fast. Yeah. I love that you have studied, that you studied the feminine before you even got into the masculine. And I'm, it's occurring to me that you probably know more about that than I do. One thing that I think is that love will save the world, but... Love is allowed when men allow it. And what I mean by that is you have to be willing to see the value in that inner. I think a lot of men are, I don't mean this as an insult, but the left brain or the masculine gets very self-congratulatory as it's going outward and building and getting bigger. And if you're just consulting with those type of people, and never allowing yourself to get checked by your spirit or your consciousness or your actual female companion being open to that that feminine keeps things in harmony and balance. Because if we look back in history, think of all the decisions that might have been different if we had exalted the feminine and said, what's your opinion or what's your perspective on this? And mm-hmm. let's work together. I'm really hopeful that that as the men's movement is rising, that also an appreciation for the femininity is also on the rise. And I, I really sense that in you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. I mean, I will say I, I'm certainly still a work in progress with um, a lot of yeah, similar aren't we pattern. All? <laughs> yeah. And, and I can just say, yeah, one of the things I've recognized too, is that when, if a man doesn't have access to like we could just call it the feminine source, like the inner feminine source, then they're, program to look elsewhere, to look outside for it. And that often then takes the place of consuming behavior with the feminine or with women. And a scene cross or like a wider cultural phenomenon, of course, is Me Too as the the sort of large scale example of that, where the, the culture, it's, the masculine and the culture itself uh, failed to cultivate enough of that access to the inner feminine and therefore looks elsewhere for it. And, and women become the source of that, right? Almost like a precious resource itself. And so I'll say that that to me reframed, although a lot of what I initially understood to be in the first wave of men's movement, where they're like, you have to, you know, a- access your feminine and you access your inner feminine. And I thought initially too, that was more emotional, right? And this a sense of emotional capacity and sensitivity, and that's all true. And then the the kind of challenge that came about though, then was men sort of laid down their warrior ship and their, you know, kind of fierceness, which is what often Bly refers to when he talks about the wild man as sort of this primal masculine energy. And so in some sense, I think, yeah, we're coming back now into this recognition that there is a need to obviously find balance in the relationship between them. And then for me as well, to recognize this need to cultivate access to the inner source, because then, yeah, then there isn't an external looking for it outside. And it's possible those that are female identified as well have a concurrent journey with the masculine, may perhaps looking to the masculine for uh, men outside of themselves as a, for a sense of safety or shelter or like a paternal dynamic, which can be the case, certainly. 
I mean, doing a lot of attachment, you know, inquiry, both in myself and more broadly, it's fascinating how much of the parental constellations show up in relationship. And a lot of the cases uh, where women end up being the unconscious mother to the partner and, or the uh, vice versa, the unconscious father to the, to the partner. And it takes a lot of work to excavate those patterns. And I should say too, it's not that those things shouldn't exist. This is the other thing I've found. It's that they become conscious. And so I think that like a lot of men have a resistance to consciously asking for motherly support or like motherly acceptance from their partner because it can be seen as weak or vulnerable. And so in some ways they can like act out or act tougher or cover it up with numbing rather than just be able to ask for it and say like, hey, could you hold me actually, you know, tenderly? And to even come to that place can often require courage. Yeah. Uh, but that to me is, can be really healing when it's made conscious and not to shame that desire or that need because it does access the little, you know, the little inner boy and the inner, inner child there that actually maybe never had that much of that as a kid, but often needs that kind of medicine as an adult. Yeah, I totally agree. And the way I've come to look at it is men are sons and brothers and fathers and kind of like parent, adult, and child. We're always shifting between those. In a relationship, hopefully we're more adult to adult and we can talk to each other. But sometimes I feel like a little girl. I want to be held. I want to be treated in a way that brings me comfort. And the same is true for men. And I think the difference in that is women are encouraged to do that, to be vulnerable and soft, and men are shamed for it. I'm yeah. yeah hopeful that a new awareness will allow men to get in touch with that vulnerability and in a loving partnership, allow that to be expressed as well. Yeah. Beautiful. That is an edge too, that I see showing up a lot, a lot of the men's offerings now, a lot of emotional literacy training and yeah, resensitizing really, as we talked again about that, you need to feel it to heal it. And I think for a lot of men, yeah, just resensitizing is a huge piece of it. And then that can also, I think, bring up the willingness to trust emotions, which, you know, it's kind of funny to even say it like that. And I, I said it like that on purpose because I realized too, that's how it's been for me. Um, I remember I was in a session with a friend who also is sort of a psychedelic guide, but he, I asked him to, in the, in the psychedelic state, I was like, I, I arrived at this question that I was, I was pondering, but I never fully like inhabited that position. And I, I really wanted to, to make it really kind of obvious. And I said, what's the point? Of emotions, you know, from this like frustrated masculine that has been some ways disconnected from their value. Just like, what's the point? And he himself, he's actually he was trained as an actor, so he had a lot of um, ability to to really access these states, kind of from a non or transpersonal place. So it wasn't really, you know it wasn't anything happening in his life, but he could access uh, anger, he could access sadness, he could act, and he recognized too that each of them carried their own, you know, their own medicine and. The, the blocking of those emotions or the repressing them or turning them into things that they're not uh, dismissing, right, can really create a lot of dysfunction. And for me, the recognition came when, you know, you can't, you can't know emotion or you can't know the value of emotions before you allow yourself to have them. You know, it's kind of like the feeling that maybe there's tears come, right? Maybe there's, there's sadness or vulnerability or heart opening. And if your mind is like, well, wait a second, you know, what's the payoff if I allow this to happen? you kind of short circuit the whole thing, right? Because then you pull back and you yeah. repress. But if you allow oneself to allow the movement to go through, then perhaps on the other side, you might think, oh, wow, so that was the value of it, right? You're like, oh, that, you know, that shift of energy or that 
um, even revelation that came because I allowed that emotion to move through. Yeah. I was trained in internal family systems therapy where we can drop down into self and observe those parts Mm -hmm. and witness those parts. And that is such a function of that feminine. I feel like more of the great mother. And what I try to let men know is you leave your mother and father's house at some point. For some people, it's much younger and some people it's much older. But one of your tasks is to become a great mother and a great father to yourself because you need both structure and order, which is more of the masculine side and nurture and care. And if you don't get that right, then you're going to, like you were saying earlier, outsource that and try to find a person to do that for you, which sets you up for picking the wrong person. And then also leaving so much in your own heart unresolved. Mm. And we all have those wounds that just need to be witnessed. Mm. If we can be our own great shepherd, and allow that hurt and pain to come into our consciousness and just weep with it and really have compassion on our, our younger self or our former self. A lot of times that's all you need for healing. It's just the witnessing. And I feel that you have the ability to witness the feminine and not be intimidated by it. In fact, you're welcoming that perspective as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And, you know, I'm drawing a, a little too from my understanding of a, a book that came out after Iron John, which is called Beyond the Hero with a fellow named Alan Chinnon. It's based in San Francisco. And he he actually sort of took the next step and he said, okay, well, if Iron John is actually about the threshold from boy to man, he's like, well, what's after that? You know, what are the stories of midlife for men? And the book I think was pretty quiet at the time. At least I had never really heard of it until somebody pointed it out, you know, when I was doing the podcast. And so I went and checked it out and I've interviewed him actually. So that'll come out in the future. But he had this really great sort of map that he offered, which was initially, if we're talking about boys and boys growing up, there's often this, yeah, an initial experience of what it means to be a boy, right? In the culture that you grew up in. And then there's this fear and fascination with the feminine is what... Mm -hmm is what the fellow Alan says. So fear and fascination. And to me, that's such bang on. It's this desire to be like, what is this mysterious creature? And right. And at the same time, like, whoa, what is this creature? She's the cliches, of course, are overly emotional or just too chaotic. All these things that often women get shamed for, that there is a need to actually um, explore that both, you know, externally, of course, but also within themselves that men have this kind of need to, to integrate and to explore, like we said, resensitize, tap into intuition, to, to the emotional realm, into, into embodiment, I think, in general. And then he says, after that, there's this third stage, which he calls accessing the deep masculine. To me, like that's the kind of next area where I think a lot of, if men have done that initial work, and I say, you know, I think I've, I've, I've certainly spent a few years there now. And then there's this curiosity and this interest, of course, in the deep masculine. And then he has a whole archetypal map of, you know, what's what's what lies in there. And Yeah. I was thinking about this the other day that the last podcast I did was Philip Folsom just did a real overview of the hero's journey. Mm. And really the hero's journey is all about you're deciding to suffer. When a man does decide to take a bride or a queen and then start having kids, that's some of the hardest times that you have in your life. And so you're deciding to continue the species and you're deciding to, you know, basically take one for the team. I'm deciding to suffer and I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice in order to have a meaningful life. Then on the other side of that, you emerge with all that delicious wisdom that you, 
you learned along the way. And hopefully all the barnacles are knocked off of your relationship. And I think you can kind of rest and you become like that tree of wisdom that people come to, to, to receive from. Well, yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, and, and pretty accurate, I think from the first two years of uh, raising a toddler, yeah. <laughs> a child now, yeah, of how intense it is. And certainly in a culture where there's not as, uh, as much village intelligence or village support, which would have made it, you know, a lot more conducive to, I mean, all the ways in which a child needs to be met and parents need support. But I think you're right. There is this willingness to step into that crucible or that initiation when, you know, when I talk to other friends too, they're still bachelors or, or you know, non-parents and they, they hope to be at some point, you know, there's this sense of like, okay, you can't be ready, but if you're going to do it, it's like you, you just go for it yeah, and be prepared to be not prepared of how intense and, and taxing and, and all the rest it's going to be. But like you said, I mean, there's something trustworthy possibly by going through that on the other side, you know, because I find that you, you, your ideas about, you know, what's possible or not, or what's valuable or not change. And I think this is also the wisdom of orienting to what does serve children, what does serve the lives of the children. Because if a culture doesn't do that, you're just doomed to continually perpetuate generations of traumatized adults. Yeah. Right. And I think that's really what a lot of modernity is. It's it's generations of traumatized adults that don't know how to parent untraumatized children. And so the cycles just continue. Although thankfully, yeah, there is a real cusp, I think, happening around trauma. You know, people like Gabor Mate and um, others that have really brought this to the forefront. And it does feel like, you know, I think he used the phrase recently, um, something like, you know, we're on the cusp of being a trauma-informed society. And that to me is really promising because it does reorient about yeah what's valuable how do we raise kids to be the least traumatized as possible you know and and what is the value to society i mean it's it's immeasurable in terms of all the ways in which society has to make up for you know crime and health and all these dysfunction that they end up paying for anyway if they don't deal with it at childhood i think you're you're so right i my oldest son is 22 and i i've told him recently i think your generation is going to be the one that calls bs on all of our consumerism and take a wife and have babies and have chickens and dig around in your yards and, you know, have a little land and just get back to what makes a life truly meaningful. Well, there's, have you seen the movie Captain Fantastic? No. Okay. Highly recommend that film. Highly recommend. Um, yeah. Because of the, what we're talking about here and just to give a little, uh, not to give away the film, but it stars Viva Mortensen, right? Who's Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's a dad and he has kids. He, he's raising his kids out basically out in the wild of Oregon. And really that, with that question, like how do I keep them as far away from civilization so they can actually have a chance of being, you know, rich yeah. and, and whole adults. But of course the challenge is if you're too far away, then civilization is too alien to you. And yeah. the challenges that come from that. And it's a really beautiful rendition of, of this very dilemma. Yeah. I'll check it out. One last thing I wanted to say about that is for for women, for me, my natural way that I want to be is just to be. Hmm. And I feel very comfortable with that. And I love to meditate. I like to read and write and all the things. But in order to survive, I really have to embrace the more masculine side. And it may be the queen for me instead of the king. But I mean, to set a goal or have a vision to be disciplined enough to get out there and, and do something to learn and have knowledge and all of those things that maybe come more naturally to a traditional masculine person. I think men even encourage their, their daughters 
to be that way. They get it when it comes to their daughters. You need to be able to take care of yourself in this world. But when it comes to their boys, I think men are kind of traditionally less open to having them embrace the feminine, which is not about getting a pedicure every every three months, which some guys think if I do feminine things, that'll get me in touch with my feminine side. Like you were saying earlier, that going within and contrasting that outer knowing or acquiring knowledge with that inner knowing, which is just almost like you're drawing from a well. It's always been there. I think you can only model that which you've experienced and, and can right. and can model and integrate it. And so, yeah, I think it would be much easier for men who are pretty good at the you know, the doing to, to model that. And that's what happens. And therefore would feel maybe less familiar, more awkward, uh, at a deficit with modeling ways of slowing down of, of intuition, emotional intelligence, right. If they have not integrated that themselves. And so it makes sense that, yeah, like we do have generational work to do. And, and I should say, you know, when I do talk to youngers now, um, certainly it's seems like it's changed in, in a lot of places. Yeah. Where they're, you know, they say, uh, or if I said, you know, do you, do you have trouble, I don't know, crying, you know, if you really feel upset and a lot of the youngers would be like, what? No, what do you mean? It's fine. So it really does feel like all of the work that had been done in previous generations is now really showing up in a bit more freedom and, and, uh, willingness to express right in different ways. So it is encouraging. Yeah. My younger clients, it's nothing for them to have female friends. It's nothing for them to express their emotions. It's, it's what they've done. Yeah, no doubt. I really appreciate your your time and your being here. And I had something that you wrote that I wanted to to read. You said that bridge builders strengthen the path for others to join. And these times ask of us to proceed toward a better day with no guarantee we'll make it. And that's the kind of courageous courage that will give us our shot. That was kind of a follow-up to the poem. Mm. Yeah. We have to take that that shot. With no guarantees. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for that. I mean, it, it, I guess, speaks to this, again, this question of if we knew, it wouldn't be courageous, right? If we knew that it, it would work out, then we'd just be going through the motions. But in some ways, that's the function of true initiation is actually to, to proceed in the uncertainty that you'll make it, a brush with death. And that is necessary from a sort of initiatory perspective at the individual level because it provides one the opportunity to recognize that life is much bigger than them. Life is much bigger than you. That doesn't mean you're nobody. It means that you're part of something much bigger. You know, there is a, a sort of undercurrent mythology that's present now around this idea that, that this is a collective initiation, right? That humanity somewhat engineered its own initiation to, to, in order to have this encounter. And at the same time, like any true initiation, there's no certainty of success. And so it's simultaneously terrifying and yet the possibility of metamorphosis is there. When I read that, and I thought about the moment of conception, all the cells, all the sperm cells are going for the egg. Mm. And one of them gets it, but they probably all celebrate on some you know, mm. cosmic level. Somebody got it and there's going to be a new baby. Throughout history, all the warriors went and maybe one got the prize or that it was that collective effort, that energy that propelled everyone. We're so caught up in our idea of what success is, and maybe it's just participation. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, I, I'm just drawing upon, um, I know if another fellow, Charles Eisenstein, had written about that very moment, and I can't remember what, might have been an essay he wrote, but he did say that there was actually sort of more recent research that showed that the actually the sperm, when they approach the egg, 
it isn't like a sort of Darwinian free-for-all, uh, but it's actually, they, there is a moment apparently of that they actually converse with each other and they actually say, okay, who's the right fit, you know, for this. Wow. And so then that one proceeds. And so it's interesting, right? Depending on what story you're carrying and, and then how you look at something, you might see, oh yeah, this is survival of the fittest, you know, only the strong survive. Or you might see, oh, this is like the wisdom of collaboration and intuition from a, a whole other organism level. And that cooperation, of course, is the key, which is true if you look at the history of humanity, that that is our greatest gift, actually, is the capacity to cooperate. Yeah, just kind of goes back again to those four archetypes or those four energies. We don't always need the warrior to go. Sometimes we need Mr. Rogers to go. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. And I wondered, can you tell everyone how they can get in touch with you or sure. to find you? Yeah, if they want to check out uh, the Mythic Masculine podcast, then check out themythicmasculine.com. And I also developed a network along with a few other collaborators for people to go who are really interested in this stuff and they want to dive in, discuss the themes in the podcast and go on their own mythopoetic journey. Uh, there's the, myth, the Mythic Masculine Network and you access that on the same site. And then if they want to look at my film work and essays, um, they can go to ianmack.com, which is I-A-N-M-A-C-K.com. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Mm. Cool. Thanks, Angela.